All right. You recall yesterday we talked a little bit about Lifne Bow, and I suggest that the response to the Joel passage in chapter 2 and verse 30, these events before the day comes, should be events before the day goes or before the day is over. And this also holds true for the Malachi 4.5 passage that Elijah will come before the day is over. That is, before the ending of the day of the Lord, and he will come then as a witness to the Jews so that they will respond to the message of Messiah. I'd like to move ahead. If... Now, I'd like to move to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you might turn there with me for a moment. The Apostle Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet Him, we beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited, either by spirit or by word, or by letter purporting to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you, and this is the key text, verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come or will not be present unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. And then it goes ahead to define something about the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, and we'll try to get to him this morning. Uh, once again, Robert Gundry, in his book, The Church and the Tribulation, speaks regarding this particular passage, and he argues that since the text means the apostasia and the appearance or the revelation of the day of the uh, man of sin must come before the day of the Lord begins, then it must mean that these events uh, take place during the tribulation and the tribulation cannot include, the, or the day of the Lord cannot include the tribulation. So he makes this statement, the apostasy must take place before the day of the Lord will begin. That's Gundry's position. Now, he argues that on several bases, and I'd like to launch an essentially a two-pronged attack. First of all, uh, the meaning of anestekin, or is present, in verse 2, and the meaning of proton, or first, in verse 3, and zero in on those two factors. And in a little fuller comment from Gundry, he says, the day of the Lord cannot have come already, Paul writes, because the two outstanding events which have not yet taken place must take place before that day. These events will fall within the tribulation. It is self-evident that since these two events will occur before the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord cannot include the tribulational period during which they occur. Self-evident, he says. And I beg to differ that it is self-evident. Uh, and Leon Morris also is somewhat more diffident when he approaches the passage. He says, in, the ref in reference to the apostasia, whatever that means, and the man of sin, he admits there is some difficulty about our understanding both of these expressions. And he continues by saying, uh, the rebellion will come first, that is what he terms the apostasia, but he does not say what it is to precede. Now, you see, that's the question that we're facing here. Gundry is suggesting to us that uh, the apostasia 
and the revelation of the man of sin, that these two events must take place prior to the day of the Lord. But what does the text say? The text says, don't get all shook up. And these are very strong terms, by the way. This is not just a little excitement over an evening television program. They are scared out of their wits, would perhaps be a better translation. Don't be this way, he says, as though the day of the Lord was already present. In other words, the question is, are you or are you not in the day of the Lord? And he's saying, you will not be in the day of the Lord unless you see these two events. Gundry says, you will not be in the day of the Lord, or the day of the Lord will not start until one and two have already taken place prior. And so that's the question. Do these events come before the day begins, or do they come during the day? It's the essence of the argument. F.F. F. Bruce uh, also cautions, along with Leon Morris. doesn't seem like these fellows are quite as sure about the interpretation as Gundry, and I, I hope you th don't think I'm getting too harsh on him. I, I do have some real problems with him. But his words, it is self-evident, kind of set me off. It is not self-evident. It is not that clear. And, and Gundry, uh, or pardon me, and Morris and F.F. F. Bruce basically agree with Gundry's position. But and so they're they're essentially sympathetic. But they're they're not really saying that the passage is that clear. Now, in the meaning of an estekan, F.F. F. Bruce, for instance, argues that the meaning in verse two, where it appears not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. I don't know how your translation, this is a, an RSV that I'm reading from here, but the Greek word there is anestikan, to be present. Uh, and he translates that Greek verb, is present, rather than has come, as RSV does. And this follows Milligan, Milligan's commentary of some years ago is one of, still one of the best on the Thessalonian epistles. And he notes, Milligan notes, that this term, anestikin, is common in the papyri for uh, referring to the current year, this year, the present time, denoting, he says strictly, present time. And Gundry correctly assumes that it is to be supplied in verse 3. The same verb does not occur in verse 3. It only occurs in verse 2. But uh, Gundry and others, and it's obvious from the context, that it belongs in understanding in verse 3. But then he translates it there, that day will not arrive. Now, why change from is present of a verb that is regularly used in the papyri to speak of a current event, the present time, to be future in the next verse. You see, all of this amounts to is whipping your own straw man, it seems to me. You've already decided that verse 3 must refer to the future, 
Therefore, you're going to take a verb from verse 2 that does not occur in verse 3, but should be understood there, I'm not questioning that, and change the tense of it to fit your theology. And I say, no, boys, when I've got the ball, the sidelines are the same place as they are when you've got the ball. We don't change. And I'm sure you've all played a little football in the front yard when, you know, somebody's hollering at you, you're out of bounds, they just ran that way for a touchdown, now you're going to take the same route, but no, you don't get the touchdown because they're hollering, you're out of bounds. Or like some of the... Uh, local baseball coaches that I have chances to articulate a few things with from time to time. <laughs> the close calls that go against them are bad calls. The close calls that go for them are always great calls. I don't know why that is, but that's the way some of them are. Uh, you can't do that. And so my argument is how you understand an can in verse 2 must be the same way it is understood in verse 3. Now, in this translation, the day of the Lord has come, in verse 3. Then in, or in verse 2, the day of the Lord has come, that is, is present. Then in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come. Now it puts it into a future. Now there, that's not too bad unless you understand the future in the same way Gundry does, as saying, now the standpoint of verse 3 is that these things... These two items are looking to the future day of the Lord. What I'm saying is, no, the day of the Lord is present in both verse 2 and verse 3. The excitement of the Thessalonian readers was they thought we are in the tribulation now. And Paul is saying, no, that's not so. Don't lose your heads over this. And perhaps even they had received a letter purportedly to be written by Paul that said words to that effect. We don't know all of the so-called Zitzim Laban, the background history of this, but it's, it's very likely that that could have happened. So don't get excited. You are not in the day of the Lord. And almost everybody agrees that that's what Paul is telling them in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he is saying, And you will not be in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not present unless these two events are seen. Then you know you're in the day of the Lord. That's my argument. Gundry's argument is, you will not start the day of the Lord until these two things take place first. And we'll get to a discussion of first or proton here in just a moment. Question. Verse 1, is that a reference to, do you believe, the rapture of the church, or what, what's, the, what's the reference there? Well, you mean the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our, our assembling to Christ. Our gathering together right. to Him. That's the rapture. <laughs> and I believe this passage very clearly teaches the pre-tribulation rapture. Why are they so upset? If He had taught them a post-tribulation rapture, everything that was happening to them would merely be speaking to them of the soon coming of the Lord. And, and post-tribs try to approach it in that very light by saying, well, they were just excited. They had a fanatical uh, desire for the return of the Lord, and they knew it was close, and so they were, they were all excited about it. I say, no, you're, they're not going to get that excited over it. What they're going to get excited over is if they've been promised they're not going to be in the tribulation, and now they think they're in it. And they are undergoing severe persecution, as chapter 1 demonstrates. Somebody else had a question? 
Okay. Now, the next word then that we need to think about is the meaning of the word first. The Greek word is proton. Uh, and the, the term is related to the, ver to the word pro, the adverb pro before, and this word commonly is understood to mean here, before the day begins. And it can, in fact, mean that. This, of course, is aided by the assumption of what is present or an estekin in verse 2, uh, that is repeated and understood in verse 3 means. If you think it means is present in verse 2, but will be present in some kind of a future concept in verse 3, then that's... Uh, that uh, helps you to support proton. However, if you look at, for instance, classical discussions of the term proton in Liddell and Scott, they suggest that its definition is foremost at the front or the end of a pole, or in using used of time, looking towards first dawn. And you say first dawn, what does that mean? Well, we talk in our modern parlance the crack of daylight. Have you read the Foxfire books? They're really interesting. And every one that talks about hunting, those are the ones I read. I don't read those ones about the hard work, the planting, and the, uh, you know, so I like to read the hunting stories. Almost every one of those hunting stories begins with crack of daylight. I've got a picture in my office uh, where I was deer hunting four or five years ago. A student uh, wanted to go deer hunting, so we went over to eastern Oregon, and I took that picture, just the crack of daylight. It's really, I think, a pretty picture. It reminds me, and that's, that's the time to be there. Uh, first dawn, but that, that's the start of dawn. It's not when you say first dawn, you're not talking, talking about something prior to, antecedent to dawn. You're talking about the start of dawn, you see. And they further explain this term frequently as an adverb it means first in the first place then it is usually followed by other indications of sequence first second third so forth uh, and then the new testament lexicons bauer aren't gingrich thayer note no great differences in the koine usages from the classical bloss de bruner their grammar indicate that the term is used of the beginning of a sequence but you see all of these talk about first in sequence beginning uh, start, none of them talk about antecedent. But this is what Gundry and others want to do with this term. They want to make it mean prior to. And that's where I object. Even in its positive form, this is a comparative form of the positive form pro, uh, which is more commonly, pro is more commonly translated as before, it nevertheless will have an object in the genitive case. Remember, the regular rule of Greek grammar is when you have an adverb or an adjective that needs some further explanation, that explanation will regularly be in the genitive case. And so pro, when it means before, regularly has an object or a modifier in the genitive case. Here, that does not exist. And it seems like if he wanted to make it very clear, he would say the revelation of the apostasy and the revelation of the man of sin happened before the day of the Lord.
but he doesn't say that. Read very carefully what the text says. Verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless, or be present, unless the rebellion comes first. You see how he's using proton here? He is not using it to mean something antecedent to something because it has no object in the genitive case. So grammatically, the other view of Gundry and so forth is less attractive uh, for that reason. The verb is not there. It must be assumed from verse 2. I say let's assume the meaning of the verb in verse 2 is exactly the same as the meaning in verse 3. In both cases, it means to be present not present in two and future in three. And let's take proton in a more usual way of meaning first in sequence, not prior to something. And so, the more common and usual meaning of proton, earliest in sequence rather than prior, and the meaning of an anestican as being present, then the, we would suggest that the text does not say anything needs to happen before the day begins. And Gundry's position that this cannot be part of the day of the Lord, I would say, uh, cannot stand grammatically or contextually. Now, any any questions? Are you still with me? Have I have I lost you along the way? And that think the board not grammatically but visually. Well, what we're saying is that. The day of the Lord, whenever it begins, boy, that's not too good. Let's try this. Whenever, whenever the day of the Lord begins, the proton relates to that in some way. If proton were intended to mean before the day begins, likely the writer Paul would have used pro and then Hemeros, the genitive case, before the day. That's what that means regularly. But that's not the construction that is here. So he is using first with special respect to the two events, the apostasy and the revelation of the man of sin. And so what it seems to me that... Uh, is being argued about things happening prior to the day beginning simply is not relevant in this passage at all and cannot be demonstrated. In fact, Proton would rather refer to these two things rather than anything prior to the day beginning. That's, that's my point. This then allows us to take an estekin in verse 2 is present and an estekin understood in verse 3 to mean the same thing is present. So the question is, how do I know that I'm in the day of the Lord? Not by suffering. They think they're suffering because they're in the day of the Lord. Chapter 1 speaks of the trouble that they're having. That's not the, that's not the issue. Trouble. Now, you're going to have trouble. There is a great tribulation coming. But just by having trouble doesn't mean you're in the tribulation. They were so shook up that they thought they were in the tribulation. They said, no, you're not. Because there are two factors here that will be recognized, great signs of the presence of the tribulation. One is the apostasia, and the other is the revelation of the man of sin. Those things absolutely will tell you where you are.
And I'm not going to take time this morning to talk about uh, those in any great extent. Just to say that these two events, the first one, the apostasia, is debated uh, greatly. And I agree with Dr. Ellison and others, C. Schuyler English and others, who take the apostasia to mean, as it is used sometimes in classical Greek, several instances, apostasia means disappearance or departure. And I take that to mean the rapture of the church. And uh, the main reason I do that is simply for this reason. Turn over to chapter 13 of Revelation. Remember that when you are dealing with Antichrist, you are essentially dealing with two people. You are dealing with the military and political leader, one person, the first beast of Revelation 13, and you're dealing with the economic and religious leader, the second beast of Revelation 13. The first beast then rises out of the sea, ten heads and seven horns, the political power, blasphemous name upon his heads, and so forth and so on. And one of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Verse 3, its mortal wound was healed. The whole earth marveled after the beast. Men worshipped the dragon, for he'd given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? His revelation seems to take place at the middle of the week with his rise to, you know, to uh, uh, worldwide military power. But the second beast comes up out of the earth, verse 11. It has two horns like a lamb. Interesting anomaly there, isn't it? Uh, lambs don't have horns, at least not so you can notice them. And it spoke like a dragon, reference to Satan. It exercises all the authority of the first beast. Now, where does the first beast get his authority? Well, he has it first by virtue of military conquest. And I take this to be the revelation of the man of sin where he achieves his great power and worldwide eminence. Now the second beast exercises all of his authority in, the, in his presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So the order of events here, it seems to me, in Revelation is that first you have the revelation of the man of sin. Then you have the great declension or apostasy. The problem that we, that we have in 2 Thessalonians 2 then, if we take apostasia, this first event, to refer to religious opposition to God, as most people do, why, then, does he make such a point of saying, except the apostasy come first and the revelation of the man of sin, and put them in backwards chronological order when he modifies it by this strong word indicating chronology, looking towards first dawn, the end of a pole, the first of something, except the apostasy comes first. Revelation 13 says, first the revelation of the man of sin, then apostasy. So I'm going to say that this apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2 cannot mean 
religious declension. It must mean the rapture of the church. It must mean the disappearance or departure of the saints. And those are the two great events to indicate the day of the Lord begins. The first great event for the church is the rapture. You know the day is going to begin after that. And for the ungodly, the great event that they face is the revelation of the man of sin. He's the one who has all of the answers to the world's problems, economic, military, social. And that's my primary reason for accepting the position that apostasia... Now, it's, it's a legitimate, it's not a common view, but let's remember this. Usage determines meaning, and when you're dealing with lexicology, invariably, and you hear some of these heavy hitters on the television, on the radio, they're saying this word means X in 45 places in the New Testament, therefore it means X here. No, that doesn't prove anything. If it means X in 145 places, whatever it means in this particular passage is determined by this particular passage, not by every other time it's used. And some of the commentaries will say things like, uh, so-and-so, this means X, but that use is rare. Well, so what? Rare does not mean impossible. Unusual does not mean never happens. I mean, we have a saying, anything that can happen will happen. I had an occasion in a baseball game here a few years ago where uh, there was an attempted bunt, men on first and second base, nobody out, terrific circumstance. I was working out uh, on the bases. The man behind the plate uh, was uh, a good man, but the, the bunt took place and it was a little pop-up. And the catcher lunged out to try to catch the ball in fair territory. And as he lunged out, he, he flat out, laid clear out flat and lunged for the ball the ball bounced about a foot beyond his glove and then took a backspin. Now, he's all spread-eagled on the ground, right? The ball does a backspin, hit him on the shoulder, and bounced over his shoulder and went foul, clear back almost to the bench. The plate man is clear back here. He can't see what's going on. I can see because I'm right there and I'm signaling fair ball all this time. We end up with two runs in and a man on third base and a coach that was out of his mind. And so first he asked, you know, he said, that's a foul ball. I mean, it, the ball came right in front of him, and he's on the bench. It's got to be foul, right? But not if it hit somebody in fair territory. And he came out screaming, how can this happen? I said, well, anything that can happen will happen. And the ball, he said, he said the catcher missed the ball. I said, right, but the ball didn't miss the catcher. See? Well, of course, the ultimate denouement was nothing mollified him, and he left the ball game, and we left the ballpark. Uh, uh, so I want to say that you've got to have the things in order if you're going to have a first with becoming before apostasy, that even though it's unusual, even though it, it does happen only rarely, it still does happen. And we don't have a democratic way of exegesis. That is to say, we're going to vote. If it's used 15 times this way and only two times that way, 15 to 2, 15 wins, 2 loses, and that's what it's going to be. We're, we're not going to decide that. The context has to decide. And since it seems to be so strong on chronology here, the only clear chronology we have set forth in any other place seems to be Revelation 13. And there, the man of sin is revealed before, uh, before the religious declension takes place. 
And so I would suggest that the apostasia rapture view is far stronger than the apostasia religious declension view is. Yes, sir. Are you saying there's two types of apostasies then? Yes. Right. That apostasia here does not mean religious declension, it means departure. And, then, and this is the only time in the New Testament where it does mean that. And then after the man of sin of reveals himself, then there will be another falling away. Yeah, that's not a departure, however. That's a religious declension, right? But I don't identify 2 Thess Thessalonians 2 apostasia with Revelation 13 apostasy. Of course, it's not called apostasy there. And I'm going to say that it's rare. I admit that. But we're not taking votes here. We're going to let the context speak for itself, and I think it speaks stronger this way than it does the, the way that it's usually taken. Yes? Did you say that the Antichrist was not one person but two persons? Yes, that's what we're dealing with is two people. Right. Uh, we're dealing with the military and political power and the economic and religious power. The Antichrist and the false prophet are the, the first beast and the second beast several different ways of referring to him, or the beast and the fall and the Antichrist, a number of different th ways they're referred to. But that's to keep in mind when we begin dealing with that, and I think we'll go right ahead to that and say a few words about him uh, at this point, or them at this point. Uh, It's amazing how, how much material there is that uh, comes out about the end times. We have a, a new academic discipline called futurism in America today. I have here a uh, current events prophecy newsletter thing, and it goes on to talk about 666, the number of the beast, and so forth. And it says this is used, the worldwide money card is using it, and J.C. Penney's uses it. Here's J.C. Penney, and the prefix is a 666. Has anybody here been to Israel? License plates, 666. Uh, I was in a prophecy conference in Toronto about four years ago, and a lady in the question and answer time asked me if I didn't think the Antichrist was, uh, or the beast was a computer. And I said, no, I don't think so. The number that is given in Revelation 13 is the number is the number of a man not of a machine, although I guess they have this gigantic uh, machine that they call the beast in Belgium, is it? Someplace like that in Western Europe, anyway. Uh, there, this was an ad that appeared in the Sunday issue of the Los Angeles Times. The world has had enough of hunger, injustice, war, etc. Can you get that on there? I don't know if it will do any good or not. Uh, the Christ is now here. I guess if you put those last two words together, it would say the Christ is nowhere. Uh, how will we recognize him? Look for a man concerned with modern problems, political, economic, and social. Since July 1977, Christ has been emerging as a spokesman for a group of, or community in a well-known modern country, and so forth and so on. When will we see him? Well, they say it's going to be very quickly, and the quickly is long since past. Uh, Another article, Saturday Oregonian, uh, copied from the San Diego Union, 1981. The new Messiah is coming, a lady from Britain says, and uh, 
She says, there is such a thing as the Antichrist, but fundamentalists take a simplistic view. The Antichrist is in reality the energy and destructive will of God. It clears away old structures in preparation for new ones. The teachings of these right-wing Christians is meant to create fear. They don't want to see the changes in economic structures, so forth and so on. Well, Scripture has a lot to say about Antichrist, about the beast and the false prophet and so forth. And I'd like to have you turn uh, to Daniel chapter 7 for a couple of perspectives. Daniel chapter 7. You recall Daniel had a vision somewhat different from the vision of chapter 2 of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a noble vision of a man image of a man with a head of gold, a chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs and feet of iron and iron mixed with clay. And its whole the whole visage or appearance was awesome. And Daniel correctly interpreted the vision, Thou art the head of gold, O king, and so forth and so on. Uh, but then, then Daniel has a vision of four rapacious beasts of prey, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings and so forth. second was like a bear. And the third was uh, like a leopard with four wings of a bird. And after this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrible and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped the residue with its feet and was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up, which is going to leave how many horns? Seven horns. And behold, in this horn were the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, in verse 20, concerning the ten horns which were on its head, the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, the horn which had the eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, which seemed greater than its fellows, I looked and this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Now this fourth kingdom is a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all other kingdoms, devour the whole earth and so forth. In this we have both the Roman Empire of the past as well as the revived Roman Empire of the period of the tribulation when this horn comes up. The ten horns, verse 24, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. So his identity in coming to power is that he is a king from the fourth world kingdom. And he seems to take power over three uh, of the kingdoms in this fourth great composite power and apparently uses this power that he gets from overtaking three of these kingdoms to springboard him to elevation above the others. So then in Revelation we have the picture of a beast with seven heads, seven divisions, with ten horns. Still has the power of ten, uh, political power of ten, but seven divisions. And the putting down of the three and so forth is uh, apparently associated with that. Then. Uh, verse 24b, he shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. This fits in with the latter half of Revelation 13 with the religious declension that takes place. Shall wear out the saints of the Most High. 
do not associate saints uh, as specifically or exclusively of the church. You don't think the church is going to be in the tribulation simply because it says the saints or the elect are going to be there, uh, simply the holy ones. And God has his saints in all ages. They weren't invented with, uh, with the day of Pentecost and so forth. Uh, so believers are going to be on the earth during the tribulation period but they will not be part of the church, as, as I believe. Then they shall be given, he shall think to change times and the law. They shall be given into his hand for a time, two times, and a half a time. But his court shall sit in judgment, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And then, of course, verse 27 deals with the kingdom. Then turn over to Daniel 11. Daniel 7 speaks of his rise to power apparently coming up through some kind of political maneuvering. We don't see him taking military action when he first arrives in power. And he seems to take that kind of power uh, through the first three and a half years of the tribulation. He doesn't have power until a, times, a time, a times, and a half a time. Apparently he does not arrive at his full power until the middle of the week. Now, in chapter 11... Verses 36 and following, 11 is a, is a fascinating chapter, and it deals with a number of data that have caused liberals to say that Daniel was a history book written in about uh, 327 or so B.C., or 167 B.C., rather than written 500 B.C. and so forth, that it's not prophecy at all because chapter 11 speaks so much of the intertestamental age. But... Uh, it seems that there's a transition uh, beginning in uh, about 32, and when you get to 36, the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. There's the religious aspect again. Shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is determined shall be done. And I take the indignation here to refer to the last three and a half years of the tribulation. He shall give no heed to the gods of his fathers. What does that say about his identity? Hard to say. Is the Antichrist a Jew? I don't know. Uh, maybe he's a Roman Catholic. People have been tipping the Pope's chair over for years trying to find a 666 on it. Uh, uh, if he goes to Israel and drives around in a car with that license plate on it, why, maybe their victory will be won. I, it's hard to say. We don't know what that means. It's one of those things of prophecy that no one will understand, I suspect, until it takes place. And then there won't be a whole lot of Bible students in that day, but I expect those who are, they will recognize it. He will give no heed to the gods of his father or to the one beloved by women, or as other translations have it, uh, to the love of women. Some people have said he's single, he's a homosexual, uh, he's this, he's that. Uh, just hard to say. Nor shall he give heed to any other god. Not a religious person at all. And yet, religious power is exercised by the second beast, the beast from out of the earth. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. That is, power is his key. Military power is the basis upon which he builds his authority. He shall honor the god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones, and costly gifts, and so forth. Now, verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen. Now turn back to 
Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 9, verse 24 and following, 70 weeks of years. Remember the, the word in Hebrew translated week here literally means seven, 70 sevens of years. And these are heptads are decreed, and I could spend some time demonstrating that. If you're interested in a full-orb discussion of this passage, Sir Robert Anderson's this, The um, Coming Prince sets this forth in, in great detail. Uh, this, he says, 77s are decreed to finish upon your people in your holy city. That's not the church. That's the Jews. That's Jerusalem to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint the most holy place. Amillennialists characteristically say this was completed at the crucifixion of Christ. I disagree. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Why the break-off with 69, 7 and 62? After the 62-week period, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. That prince who is to come is Antichrist, not Messiah. The city is Jerusalem. That has not happened yet. It, they try to identify it with the Roman Titus. Can't be done. And its end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, one seven-year period. And I take it to be this is a covenant that he will make a mutual defense covenant with Israel during the tribulation period. And apparently right at the first, while he's still in control, perhaps, of one of the nations of the Western Empire, and arising to power, he's friendly with Israel. For half of the week he shall cause sacrifice and offering to cease, and upon the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. Now, this time of the end, he gets attacked, turn back to chapter 11, verse 40, the king of the north of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. Apparently what we have happening here is the land of Israel and the king of the north coming down and the king of the south coming up. The king of the west comes in because of threats, Ezekiel 38 and 39, against the nation Israel, and he is attacked, it says, by these people. Now, the king of the north and the king of the south are apparently allies in this attack. They'll come with many ships, with horsemen, and so forth. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom, Moab, the main part of the Ammonites, shall stretch out his hand against the countries. The land of Egypt shall not escape. Who is this he here? Let's go back and look again. The time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Okay, the him here is Antichrist. The king of the north shall rush upon him. The him here is Antichrist. 
like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen with many ships, and he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. Now who is the he? The nearest antecedent is the king of the north. And I believe that's exactly what happens, that the king of the west is here, all right, in accord with his covenant that he has made with many for one week, but the king of the north comes down and the battle takes place and he is defeated. Turn back to Revelation 13, that is, the Antichrist is defeated by the king of the north. Chapter 13 The beast is seen with seven heads and ten horns and a blasphemous name on its heads. The beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's mouth, like a lion's mouth. The dragon gave his authority and throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, death wound, but the death wound was healed and the whole earth followed after the beast with marvel. In other words, the defeat took place and ostensibly... The beast is slain. Either he is slain or everybody thinks he is. Because when, it, when it's healed, now, of course, medical science can do marvelous things. People don't usually marvel. The close family gives thanks and so forth and so on. But this is something far more severe than you would expect a normal, serious condition to be. And I take it that he really died or was thought to be dead by everybody. And there's, there's no way to tell at this point. But the whole world thought that he died and was brought back to life again. And, of course, here is the, the real uh, counterfeit of the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the battle takes place here and he is slain, the king of the west. The king of the south, the north, keeps going, figuring, hey, look, if I've defeated the king of the west, all I need to do is bump off the king of the south, my ostensible compadre here, and I will have all the power that I need. I will control the world. Now notice, back in Daniel 11, this king of the north shall come into the glorious land, verse 41, that's obviously Israel. Tens of thousands shall fall, but Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites are delivered out of his hand. They are across the Jordan and he's headed south. And Egypt shall not escape. There he's headed for the south. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold, of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt. The Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow in his train. He is victorious in the south. But tidings from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go forth with great fury to exter exterminate and utterly destroy many. So he gets down here and gets into the land of Egypt. Tidings out of the north and out of the east. And what are those tidings? The guy you thought you killed or the guy you did kill is alive and well and sitting at the heart of your supply line. So get back, take care of business, and we have then here the battle. Tidings of the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go forth with great fury to exterminate and utterly destroy many. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now, it cannot be the battle of Armageddon because of what follows in chapter 12. What follows in chapter 12 is the, the period of the great 
tribulation, which is the last half of the week. And putting these passages together with Revelation 13 seems to me that what we have in the first half of the week and the second half of the week is the beast rising to the zenith of power right here and maintaining this power to the end. And the battle takes place at this point. He is put to death, or ostensibly so, rises to power, defeats the king of the north who has already defeated the king of the south for him. All the world marvels after the beast, and now he's riding high, wide, and handsome. Come back tomorrow for another exciting episode.